welcome to Getting Unstuck. My hope is this podcast helps you get unstuck so you can begin living the life you've always dreamed of. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Getting Unstuck. My co-host today is Justin Lamb, and he is a successful podcast host, a future therapist, and a musician, and he is an advocate for sobriety, therapy, and trauma research, all the things that I am so interested in, Justin. So welcome. All the fun stuff. Yes, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here. I want to also mention the name of your podcast, which is Friend Request. So yes, hit him up on anywhere. anywhere yeah. we can. Just listen to this episode first, though. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Let's start with your addiction and your recovery. Tell me about your addiction. Yeah, uh, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a few in that realm. I, I'm almost two years sober from alcohol, uh, and, and that was something I didn't even really accept that I was struggling with for most of the time that I was was using. And then I am also I also had a number of behavioral addictions for most of my life. The, the most recently, I mean, alcohol, alcohol was a catalyst to all the behavioral addictions, right? Like I battled sex addiction, love addiction, and alcohol was always a catalyst for that. Even when I went through the the therapy and I, I found the sources, you know, I, I'm a big fan of, of finding those trauma points, finding those like beginning, like this is where it started points and then working your way forward to, to kind of break some of that, that habit and that stigma and the negative self-talk, like everything in, that's involved with any sort of addiction recovery. Even when I was able to do that, when I drank, you know, throw all that out the window, right? So it, it took a while for me to so I went to therapy for sex addiction like almost a decade ago, and I, I very quickly found the sources of that were rooted in in my childhood. I was sexually abused when I was 11, uh, and then I found the internet, God help us. And then, yeah, yeah uh, fast forward, you know, Craigslist. Uh, I lived out in Los Angeles for a couple of years, just completely self-destructive. And when even when I got through all that and I no longer was exhibiting the compulsive behavior, or anything like that. When I drank, you know, it flooded back in there. And but I didn't want to give up alcohol. And you always, as someone that drinks problematically, you always try to find these other people to compare yourself to and be like, oh, well, I'm not that bad. And it's a really easy way at rationalizing your situation. And I am, I was an expert, still am. I, it's something I have to be aware of. Like, I'm an expert rationalizer, I can rationalize anything to make myself feel better about the behavior that I'm, I'm participating in. And I have to be aware of that at all times. Otherwise, it's a slippery slope to negative behavior. I mean, thankfully, I don't really feel the desire to drink anymore. But you know, there's plenty of there's plenty of bad stuff out there that you can easily slip back into. But yeah, with alcohol, it just, uh, you know, I got diagnosed with an autoimmune disease in 2018. And they wanted to put me on a prescription that I couldn't drink on. And that like right there freaked me out. I was like, wait, what? And I would have found another doctor. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, it, and it freaked me out. You know, it's it's sad, but if it wasn't in a vital organ, I don't think I would have done the treatment because it was in my lungs. And I was like, oh, well, <laughs> you know, you got to wait out. But if I look back, like found a way to rationalize it and be like, no, that's just like one doctor's opinion and it's probably going to be fine. 
And fast forward, just like fun fact, I found out because I did change doctors and they're like, you should have never been put on that medication to begin with. So, but, oh, brother, right. but that medication in a way it, it changed and, and maybe saved my life because I did stop drinking for, for six months while I was on this, this medication. Now, during that time, I stockpiled rare beers and everything. I was like, well, when the six months is up, I'm going to drink again. And, and I did when it was up. But during that time, I really was kind of forced to evaluate uh, my relationship with alcohol. And when you go three, four months without drinking, and you realize that that's the longest you've gone without drinking since you started drinking, that's a that's a pretty messed up fact. And, you know, I talk to people about that. And, and women sometimes would be like, Oh, well, no, when I was pregnant, I didn't drink for nine months. I was like, Yeah, but other than that, <laughs> other than and like what like I'm on medication at the time, right? So other than when someone or something is forcing us to not drink, how often do we make that decision to take this extended break from alcohol? Because we'll take breaks from refined sugars and we'll take breaks from, you know, broccoli, but like alcohol is this constant in most people's lives. And it's just kind of this driven by the societal norm. And after that six months, I drank again. And I'll never forget when I took that first drink, because even though I had made no decisions to get sober, I did have this kind of like pride in myself that I hadn't drank for that long. And I didn't talk about it. I never even said it out loud. So no one was there to like comfort me. In fact, I think at the time my wife was like, it's fine. Like you can drink, like it's no big deal. Cause I hid a lot of my stuff. Even my in-laws were like, why did you quit drinking? You were fine. I was like, you don't know nothing. But I, I started drinking again and my levels with my autoimmune disease went back up. And they're like, we're going to, we want to put you on that medication again. And this time I was a little wishy-washy about it. I was like, I don't really want to do it again. Like that was a real annoying bummer last time. Cause on top of the medication, like I also had to take folic acid supplements, like certain times of the day. It was really, it was super annoying. Immunosuppressants are no joke. It's not. <laughs> and, you know, and so then I, I was also traveling for work cause I travel for work and when, anybody that travels for work, uh, if you drink, you know, like that's that's what you do when you're on the road uh especially my region is the midwest i go to a lot of towns where there is nothing but bars and hotels <laughs> so uh you know that was just what you did i did the job during the day and then at night you go to the hotel either drink there or go to the bar next door or applebee's you know whatever right, that looks yeah. like and uh knock back like, whatever beer wine whatever your drink of choice is yeah. And, uh, you know, wake up feeling like crap the next day. And that was just like the cycle. Rinse, repeat. Yeah. And it was during the traveling when, you know, you start drinking and you let your guard down in other ways in your life. And and I, I really was like, okay, they want to put me back on this. I'll use that as my like jump start to quit drinking. And I knew we were going on vacation soon. And amongst like other, I was super busy. I was... I was running another podcast that I had that was about beer <laughs> and yeah. And going to a craft beer and music festival as well as had a vacation planned and we were moving the week we got back from our vacation. Wow. So yeah. So I was like, you know what I'm going to, when we get back from our vacation, like moving week, right. I don't want to be hung over any of those days. So I was like, I'll quit drinking when we get back. And I did, that was June 24th, 2019. And I haven't drank since then. So depending on when the still air, it'll be uh, two years. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. So you must be a very functional drunk or you were if. Um, 
in-laws are like, you're fine. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that was one of the things going back to what I said about comparing people, right? Like I was never the, you know, I didn't drink at work. I didn't put myself in situations where the outside world was going to like find me and I was going to get in trouble. I had, I like driven when I shouldn't have driven. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that people do and rationalize far too often when, when they're drinking, even people that are not problematic drinking. I mean, my parents' generation, they would get pulled over after a few drinks and I've heard the countless stories, you know, just, they'd be like, all right, well, you know, don't do that again, get home safe. And the gen my grandparents' generation was even more lax than that. And it wasn't until, you know, the millennials and, and now like Gen Z or whatever everybody's yeah. called yeah. that uh, it's really been a crackdown on like drunk driving and you can go to jail and you like all this stuff that that really wasn't the case before. So it in some families and I think in some environments because of our parents generation and our grandparents generation, it was kind of normalized where not that you should do it, but like, you know you've seen mom and dad do it. Uh, my dad was an alcoholic his whole life. And I didn't, I only saw him once or twice a year for like most of my life. And when I did see him, like he'd have some beers in his car and he did. And like, it was never, I mean, it was a big deal. <laughs> when I look back, yeah. I'm like, you had two little kids in the car. You probably shouldn't right, do that. Yeah. But, but it wasn't a big deal to him. And when you, like I said, when you look at some old old TV shows or old movies and just our parents, you know, our parents would tell us don't drink and drive. And then you'd see them, you know, go out with their friends to dinner, have more than like one or two glasses of wine or scotch or whatever that may be. I've seen so many of my friends' parents leave places like intoxicated. Yeah, same. And it's, and then they tell you like, don't do that. <laughs> right. So it's, it's a hard lesson to learn when you just see it over and over and over again, repeated. That's so that's where I, w I guess I was functional in the way that, you know, I drank during drinking times. I drank after work. I drank on the weekends. I didn't drink, like I didn't hide bottles in my office drawer or anything like that. Uh, but when I drank, I drank, I didn't buy a six pack to like last for the weekend. I bought a six pack to drink the six pack. And which like medically, uh, I don't know, factually, I don't know what the word I'm trying to find is, but binge drinking is four drinks for women and five drinks for men in, in one sitting. So if you're drinking a six pack, that's binge drinking. Right. Yeah. Uh, and you think like, you go to the bar, you have three beers, but those three beers are in 20 ounce glasses and they're seven to 10% alcohol. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, and when you start doing math, you're like, oh, that's a six pack too. <laughs> like, exactly. It's, it's just really it's really messed up the way that it's all given to us now because um, yeah and it will normalized but also the delivery method you know i'm a big craft beer person and i'm still a big craft beer person and i'm a big like advocate for the craft beer like non-alcoholic craft beer movement you Our know parents, what bothers me about the non-alcoholic yeah sorry to interrupt you is oh you're good my husband and i we don't drink yeah but the non-alcoholic beer is never in a cooler Oh yeah, no, I know. Always I'm, just I'm, on the shelf. I know. I just wrote uh, a piece. There's the there's a sober blog called the Sober Curator that I, I contribute to now, and I just wrote a piece about that and how you, yeah, you have to go to like the back of the store and this dusty area, and, <laughs> exactly. and it's the lighting for some reason's broken, and you like have to wipe the dust off the O'Doul's label to find it. And, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it, there's a, there's a lot of 
negative connotations associated with non-alcoholic beer and everything else, which is, there's a lot of negative connotations with non-alcoholic beer and non-alcoholic drinks, uh, even though I would say that's one of the better decisions, you know, from designated drivers to uh, pregnant women to like all the people that aren't necessarily alcoholics, but just have chosen not to drink. And then they get shamed for her. Yeah. Like, yeah. Let's put this in the no one cares about this section of the store. I was going through a, a checkout line, grocery shopping, and I had non-alcoholic beer. And the, the cashier actually said to me, is this real? Like, what is this? And mm -hmm. She was probably 17 years old, but she had no concept of that there was such a thing. Yeah. Oddly. Yeah. yeah. I had to release a lot of frustration and anger off one question that I constantly got asked and I and I still get asked. Thankfully with the with the craft non-alcoholic beer, a lot of the clerks don't even know it's non-alcoholic cuz it <laughs> it's like, you know, it's some random named IPA and they just see like IPA and they ring it up and it unfortunately it costs the same as regular beer. But every time I always get asked, you know this is non-alcoholic, right? <laughs> and it, it I hate it and it drives me crazy. And I don't even know what it is. Like, I'll be like alone in the store. You know, it's not like someone's going to overhear and I'm going to be like, oh, my God, they, they know. Everyone knows. Right. Uh, but it's I think part of it is even though they don't mean it this way, maybe they just want to like avoid a return. I don't I honestly don't know what. It, yeah, but, <laughs> but yeah, in my head there, I'm thinking that they're thinking like this moron grabbed the non-alcoholic version <laughs> see now i'm thinking they're probably thinking like why would you drink this i i need to point him in the right direction oh i have a lot of those conversations too yeah. like <laughs> I, I what's the one thing that you noticed in your life that changed when you quit drinking emotionally physically spiritually i only have to i can only pick one <laughs> no all three if you want yeah. uh yeah everything changed you know it's been a it's been a compounding of factors between sobriety, therapy, and then this last year that we all kind of shared where we either, you know, deal with a lot of stuff that we have to deal with that we may have been putting off because now you're just in your house alone and, you know, figure it out or, or drink a lot of, I know a lot of people that got sober during this time because uh, and I can relate when this, when corona, the coronavirus started, when lockdown started across the country, first thing I thought was like, oh man, I would be drinking so much right now. Because yeah. what else are you going to do? Especially all the people that didn't have to work. You know, you have, you have populations of people that are making the same or more on unemployment. So they could literally do whatever they want with their day. Right. And drinking is uh, a wonderful cure for boredom that uh, gets out of hand quickly. Yep. So I, I, everything has changed for me in, in sobriety. I have, the biggest thing and most recent thing is I've learned to love myself and say that without making a joke afterwards. Uh, I've provided, I've been incapable of providing value for myself for most of my life. Uh, I was constantly seeking validation from other people and that's, I mean, that's where everything stemmed from. That's where the sex stemmed from. That's where the alcohol stemmed from. That's where, I mean, I play guitar and sing. That started because of that, uh, because I was 
bringing people to me that were telling me I was good at something, that I was worth something. And uh, just like likes and comments on social media, you know, I wanted more of that. And I'm able to now provide that for myself. And I'm able to recognize that the things that I'm putting out there in the world are providing value to other people, which in turn means that I am providing value to other people. And that's something I was never able to do. And it's it's the biggest change in my life ever. Uh, like everything is better because of those simple things. And they're not simple. I shouldn't say that. No, <laughs> they're very you... difficult to achieve. Uh, well, that was a beautifully honest answer. And well, thank you. <laughs> I'm, honestly, I'm always saying to people that love is the medicine for everything. Yeah. But and when you yeah. don't have it within, you you do seek it from the, in the external world. Oh yeah, and you can get it in all sorts of forms and fashions. <laughs> yes, right. What do you think for you, Justin? What was the hardest addiction for you to break? So I and and it's funny. My therapist says the same thing that I'm about to say is like I don't know if I would really throw myself into the category of of like sex addict or love addict what i was seeking was i found in, in sex i could find people to tell me like uh, to validate me right in the most intimate way right um and that's that's where that came from so the hardest uh, addiction i think was was that was seeking out that validation in in unhealthy ways you know there's there's better ways to go about it and most behavioral addictions stem from somewhere like that they stem from needing that uh you know there's a lot of inner child work there there's a lot of uh, I, I need you to protect me and tell me i'm worthy and tell me i'm good enough and uh, what better way to seek that than like the most intimate relationship you can create with somebody Right. Uh, and that's that's what I was always seeking, and that was that that was the hardest thing to stop. Like, well, that and maybe cigarettes. I smoked for ten years, and that was a pain in the ass. I understand but... that one too. <laughs> How old were you when your sex addiction started? Oh did, God! Did it start the same time that you began drinking? No, I didn't drink. Uh, I was substance-wise, I was a good kid until like literally, I think the last year of high school, and. Wow. I don't think I would have ever like fessed up to it being peer pressure, but I learned, you know, like you can go to a lot more parties and hang out with a lot more people if you're drinking. <laughs> so, and my, my high school was like my entire high school, I almost said high school career. I don't like that phrase. It doesn't make <laughs> any sense to me, but my entire like tenure at high school was based on my social life. I didn't care about academics at all. My social life was like a lifeline for me. That was my like protection factor because I needed that to find some semblance of happy so I didn't fall into some depressive hole. But so when I found that like, oh, towards the end of high school, I was like, I can literally hang out with anybody I want and go to parties every weekend because like that's the commonality between all these things is, is drinking. But the, the sex stuff, I mean, like I said, I was abused when I was 11. Didn't even know it was sexual abuse until I told my therapist like 25 years later. And she was the first person I told. So I just didn't tell anybody. So that and my brother was almost four years old. Well, I guess I would say was. He still is almost four years old with me. Our age gap did not change. But, you know, he was a little older. So he would he would like would bring Playboys home from school like the kids were passing around and so I got exposed to that a little earlier than than some kids. And then the internet, man, I was heavy into like AOL chat rooms when I was 12 years old. Wow. And, and that continued for 10 years 
And that, you know, that's that exposure right there is really all you need. And I found out that I could, you know, manipulate whoever I was to make that other person on the other side, who was also probably pretending to be somebody else, uh, tell me I was good enough or be interested in me. And like, it all comes back to that same thing. So that's, yeah, probably, I mean, yeah, 12, 13, like I didn't, again, didn't recognize that it was an issue or a problem for years and years and years and years and years. And was it therapy that helped you figure out that you were seeking validation? Well, yes and no. I mean, I don't think I would have come to many conclusions at all without therapy. Yeah, (laughs) I'm a big proponent of therapy myself. Yeah, Yeah. same. And, but I did, the validation piece was something I really discovered last year and like a train hit me because when the lockdown started, I was on Facebook multiple times a day doing live videos, playing songs. And then I would just, you know, see how many people watched, how many people liked, how many people viewed. And it it got obsessive and it it got a little compulsive, which I was like, oh, I know this behavior. (laughs) (laughs) This feels familiar. And I finally, like, I, I recognized, I didn't know what I was doing yet, but I knew it wasn't healthy. I was like, I got to stop doing this. And so stopping that and not having a replacement for that, I really was forced to be like, oh, what what am I missing? Like, what is this thing that I'm now very uncomfortable without? And it was that validation piece. And then I just dove in head first because that's my favorite part about therapy that a lot of people shy away from is like when I do find that pain point that started that reasoning, I want I want to go head first, like let's let's make it hurt if it it gets to the end point if i get to have an answer to a question like i was i was in a parking lot a couple weeks ago at the post office and a truck was parked across two parking spots and i was infuriated and i get like in traffic if someone cuts you off or something it is such a trigger for me and i get so angry and i've my, my therapist even asked me a couple of years ago when I was complaining about traffic. She's like, why is that? I was like, I don't, I don't know. Cause they're inconsiderate, you know, like it drives me nuts. Yeah. And then I, I paused for a second. Cause I was like, you know, I look at that and I'm not going to actually follow anybody home or anything, but I was like, I want to, I want to follow him home. I'm going to find out where he lives. I'm going to write him a letter about what a piece <laughs> of crap he is. And I was just like, Justin, why, why are you, why does this make you so angry? Why do inconsiderate people in public places that don't actually affect you right like sure sometimes if you get cut off or something and in that moment it affects you but uh as long as you don't get in an accident chances are it's not going to actually impact your drive time uh if i have to park one space away at the post office that's not that's not a a deal breaker and (laughs) so like why do i get so worked up about it and i don't know the answer but taking the time in those moments to pause and ask myself, like, where is this coming from uh, has become like one of my favorite practices because finding those root causes is like when we go back to like trauma, you know, that's finding those things means so much to me. And I, I, I'm in a lot of sobriety groups and I hear a lot of people talk about um, and I didn't do AA and I, I think whatever path works for you. Awesome. Um, but there are some things that some people believe in, in sobriety that I'm not necessarily on board with. And I'm trying to think of a, a good metaphor for this, which is funny. I thought this question would come up 
and I came up with like a bunch of metaphors earlier and I was so confident <laughs> about it that I was like, I'll just come up with one on the spot and now I can't think of anything. <laughs> I'll just say exactly what it is, is people want to, you know, they want to quit drinking and I believe alcoholism is a real thing. First of all, I don't want to get that wrong. Uh, I do believe alcoholism is a real thing, but I think there's, there's a root cause there, right? And there's, there's genetics in there. My dad was an alcoholic. My grandpa was an alcoholic. Like I am predisposed when I find out what the real, like, like, why did you start drinking at whatever age you started drinking at? Like what situation were you in where that was a coping method or a protection skill or something where you were, you know, it wasn't about the alcohol. It wasn't about having a drink at a party. What was the underlying thing? I'm a big proponent for finding those underlying things because that's that's where you really can let go of a lot of that. I agree. You know, yeah. I hear people that are just, they struggle daily, like, you know, eight years sober, I'm, I struggle every day to not drink. I have to ask myself, like, have you really put in the work to, you know, find out why you were drinking to begin with? Yes. Because it sounds like you still are waiting for that to help save you from whatever discomfort you're in instead of dealing with that discomfort. Yeah. Does that make sense? It makes all sense. And I think total sense. And I think that, that when you find the root cause, then you stop putting band-aids on it. Exactly. It, it's because you've exactly. finally gotten to the reasons why. Yeah. That yeah. was one of my metaphors. I knew there was a band-aid one in there. I was like, <laughs> I seriously, <laughs> I went in circle. I was like, oh, there's still, oh, I could use this, like this one, this one, this one. And I, then yeah, complete blank. <laughs> I want to talk to you about your therapy too, because I know that you, your therapy involves EMDR work. Yeah, I, uh, I did EMDR. So eye movement desensitization reprocessing, um, which fascinated me. So one of the, I read a lot of books last year um, and, and going to school to be a therapist, like get a master's in counseling. There's a plethora of books. I'm sure I will still read and I'll read some of these over and over again. But a couple that stuck out to me, which is like one is the therapist Bible, right? The body keeps the score, uh, which is an amazing book. And then did you say I, the body keeps the keeps the body the keeps score? the score? Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Vessel Bon Poke, it's right here. I can't read the author's name from here and I probably screwed it up. But yeah, The Body Keeps the Score and Childhood Disrupted, which I haven't heard anybody mention Childhood Disrupted in anything that I look at. And it was such an impactful book for me. Uh, it's, and it's obviously about tra childhood trauma and like the stuff that stops developing or when you get put in a traumatic situation or you know, the coping methods and stuff that you develop. But both of those books talked about EMDR. And I, it made sense the way it was described because it was mimicking rapid eye movement. So you put yourself into like a, the same mindset you would be in in REM sleep where you're kind of lucid, but, but also unconscious in, in a way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I am not a doctor, so... <laughs> but, and that's where you kind of deal with your trauma in, in that mind frame. And I was open to it, which I think is probably the most important thing going into it. I Cause I, you know, it wasn't electroshock or something. I know no one was trying to hypnotize me or anything. So I was just, I was like, let's, let's see what this does. And I did six sessions. Well, you know, I did all the intake stuff where we, I had regular therapy sessions with her. And then I did six like actual EMDR sessions, just sobbed each one, <laughs> and, which surprised me. 
What shocked me, Justin, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Oh, you're fine. The memories that came back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just memories that were buried from years ago, which I had forgotten, which I know were driving a lot of my addiction and obsessions. Yeah. So it's fascinating how just that rapid eye movement can trigger a memory which then you're like oh no wonder i'm the way i am like yeah it, nothing it was, wrong with me it's just buried trauma and just the little details of the memories like the insignificant things like we we the first thing we talked about was my sexual abuse and you know remembering like the light underneath the door and the 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 floors of the house like there's like little things that i never really gave any thought to but like that's what was coming out when I was describing stuff uh, that was remarkable and the biggest thing I I of all the miscellaneous trauma that I, I dealt with with EMDR I had the biggest breakthrough with my brother I my brother like I said he's he's three and a half years older than me we never got along and that's what we both say to everybody that asks about our relationship but that's not true and I didn't really except that that wasn't true until I did EMDR because I, I wanted to talk about my brother. I was like, my brother's a big pain point with me. Like nobody gets under my skin more than him. So we kind of dived in and what turned out to happen was I, I had a good relationship with him until I was about 10 years old. Uh, and that's about the same time that like he kind of got in with a, with a bad crowd. And that's when he started doing drugs and smoking cigarettes and, and, all the stuff where I was like a 10 year old being like, no, you're doing all the stuff our dad did. Like, don't do that. And what I never thought of to do, and it never would have even occurred to me to do was grieve that loss. Cause I didn't, we didn't just stop getting along. Like I lost that version of my brother, that version that I held on to my protector because our parents divorced when I was four. So he was, you know, he was my older brother for those next six years. And I like, I have memories of us at my dad's house when we would visit and he would like comfort me. Cause I was like, what is this strange house we're in? I barely know this person. I never grieved that person. I never separated those two people. So I was still holding all this anger for him not being the person that he was when he wow. was 13. Wow. I was able, like I came out of it and I was able to separate those two people and take time to actually like grieve the loss of that brother that I had then instead of combining it with the person that he is now. And like, we're still, you know, we don't like throw parties together or anything, but I also don't feel that on edge around him anymore. And I don't feel there's still some anger because that's just our relationship, but uh, we disagree on a lot of stuff, but there's not that, that deep seated anger, you know, that, that just, so that was, that was insane. Uh, That like that blew my mind. Uh, And then some other stuff came up where I really identified some really important people in my life that I, like, I didn't think we're unimportant, but I didn't give them nearly as much credit. Uh, you know, my resiliency factors, essentially growing up, the people that encouraged me to uh, be creative and protected me. And like my grandma, who is now passed, but like she was, she was probably the reason I'm not, you know, doing heroin or something or like something much worse than, than I did get into. So yeah, it was, it was really it was big. It was a big experience. I describe it as, as big. Cause it yeah. was, like I said, I sobbed each, each session. Uh, 
and I that's one thing also circling back with quitting drinking and getting sober like some of the emotions that came to the surface that I'd just been numbing for 20 years what a beautiful awareness about your brother because it let him off the hook yeah it's and you know I still struggle with forgiveness um that's something I'm working on just it's difficult for me to forgive people for stuff when they like don't when they don't accept what they had done and they don't own their own stuff yeah yeah and so and i know that's that's not what forgiveness is so (laughs) it's what i'm yeah uh so i i it is something i still struggle with but i've come leaps and bounds um because of that that session uh as far as that goes and tell me how music has affected your life so did you find music after recovery or when you were younger music has been in my life always um i my mom sang when i was growing up uh she was like occasional occasional bands with some friends and music was always a thing in my house Uh, me and my brother and my mom when we were like little little kids would dance around in the living room to like thriller and and bon jovi (laughs) and stuff yeah and Uh, music was always a a thing and then i was in choir in junior high uh which i found another place where i felt like i belonged i had a voice and i was i was good at it i got a lot of validation out of being in choir and like i would get a solo and and i was just getting this recognition even though it was in uh, this niche environment that was ripe for jokes and being made fun of but then right after junior high, I got into punk music and was asked to be the front guy of a punk band. And that that really like sent the ship sailing because, <laughs> uh, yeah, being on stage with uh, an audience, regardless of the size, and you're the guy like that's essentially controlling everything. I would purposely put in like vocal breaks and songs. So the rest of the band would have to like wait for me to jump back in and I'd have <laughs> I'd have so much fun with it. And it felt so good to be up on stage and be that front person. And that's, I got a guitar at 16 and started like really writing songs uh, at that point. And are you still in a band? No, uh, I, I got out of the punk band and I tried, I started to do like my own solo acoustic singer songwriter stuff. And I did that for forever. I guess I still do that technically, (laughs) But that, like, I went out to L.A. and tried to do that out there. Then for all the wrong reasons, like, then I got into, you know, drugs and sex. And I was I moved out there with a girl and then she left after a year. And the next year I was out there by myself in like complete self-destruct mode. So uh, I did not do much for my music career, (laughs) Uh, but I, I did end up like I recorded a couple albums on my own and then I started a Kickstarter. Um and funded a studio album with full band and that came that that came out 2013 and then i i got really heavy into the like just bar scene where i was playing bars and doing like you know cover songs and stuff but i realized how much money i was making doing it so i was like i'll do this for a while (laughs) um and then then i just kind of i kind of stopped you know music music has become a kind of a love-hate relationship for me it for most of my life it was part of my identity like 
people there's many many people that only know me as as a musician uh, a singer and when i wouldn't feel like doing it i felt guilt and shame about that and yeah so like this this year and this is another thing i think that i found through through sobriety and through therapy and in the last year is i picked up my guitar like three times so far this year and it's almost june and i'm fine with that <laughs> it, like it's not going anywhere uh and when i do feel like playing i play and when i don't i don't and that's okay it took me a long time to be okay with that and that's freedom yeah and it's it's nice and there is a little voice in my head even saying it right now that's just like yeah but you should be playing it more <laughs> i was like but for for who like who am i appeasing when i play 90s alt rock covers in my basement by myself if i don't want to do it <laughs> right, exactly. yeah. so not so much fun yeah and so I, i've i've tried to not like publicly or even consciously really separate that from my identity but uh it's not something i prioritize as much as i used to unless i feel like doing it and nice. I, I feel like i'm doing much more important things with my free time right now so well school i yeah. bet takes up a bunch of your time you'd be surprised with online classes yeah, yeah. <laughs> what made you decide to become a therapist uh my podcast Really? <laughs> so well so here's how that goes i as i've said over the last however long we've been talking i've had a lot of creative passions right music is is the forefront uh, i also am a writer and i also i don't know i like building stuff i have painted a couple times i i really i, I go on little journeys of creativity in different areas when i feel like doing it and that that in itself, if you can allow yourself to do it, is very freeing. Um, but there's never been anything that I'm like, I can make a career out of this. There was a long time where I was like, I can make a career out of music. And at some point I was like, okay, I can't. I mean, <laughs> I, I could if I wanted to like really just do the bar shows for the rest of my life, which I, I have no desire to do. And then this came along and I started interviewing people and within a first few first few interviews I had just really good intuition into what people were talking about and some of the roots of their stuff and I my favorite thing that happens during any interview and it happens in almost every interview which is very validating for me is I'll connect something for someone they'll tell me a story and I'll relate it back to something they'd said previously or something in their past and there's a moment where the guest pauses and they say either, oh, I've never really thought about that before, or, oh, no one's ever asked me that. And they they think about something for a second, a little light bulb goes off. And I, I live for that moment. Nice. Yeah. And I realized what I was doing in these podcast interviews was little like microtherapy sessions. And I really enjoyed it. It gave me so much energy like spiritual energy which i'm not comfortable saying that word and and i realized that this is something i could make a career out of and i very quickly uh, took a few classes to get on the track to like transfer everything over to oakland university so i can start a master's in counseling program and and i've been working on that 
since since then. So it was it was really the podcast was the nail that really drove drove this dream home. The beautiful part about you being a therapist, I think, is that your life experience will bring so much to your practice. I like to think so. I like that I'm coming into it later. Uh, and I, I went into it with the thing that I've said this on, on a number of other things, but as long as I'm practicing by the time I'm 43, I'm fine with that. And I'm, I'm 38 <laughs> now. I, I, that's another five years. I'm fine with that because I know it's a, even if it's like a two year program, there's, you know, you get a thousand clinical hours and there's just like, there's a lot involved. So, right, yeah, it's... Uh, so I, I've accepted that it's gonna, it's gonna be a little while, but it's something I, for the first time in my life that I really want to do for a career because work has never meant anything to me. Work is the, work's the paycheck. Yeah, I get uh, You know, it's how I spent my free time that meant anything to me. And the fact that I found something I can, call my job and also have passion around is you know that's the that's the goal right that's <laughs> like that's life yeah to yeah do something you love and get paid for it yeah and it doesn't feel like as they say it doesn't feel like work because you yeah. have to eat so much yeah when the people that go to college right out of high school graduate and get a job that they are still at today they're an anomaly to me yeah I, yeah i sometimes i love interviewing those people because i'm like tell what's what's wow. the secret yeah, oh, yeah what wow. Did you do, yeah. like, or I'll be like, are you going to wake up next year and be like, what have I been doing with my life? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just projecting my own stuff onto them being like, when are you going to break down? Yeah, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. It took me so long. I have three associates degrees because I perpetually just stay in school. Uh, oh, I wow. like, I like learning yeah. and I also like delaying my student loans and, <laughs> <laughs> and now I have like an actual end goal and I'm very excited about it. Nice. Well, I wish you, we're at the uh, end of time and I wish you all the best in your school. And I, I know that you're going to be a fabulous therapist. Well, thank you. I have a very open heart about you and a very compassionate, caring soul. And uh, I think people will be very lucky when they find you. Well, that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> oh, well. Thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate your time today. Absolutely, Sharon. Thank you so much. 